being able to think critically, think well, explain thoughts and be persuasive in the culture today and having these difficult conversations is so, so important. And it's so common to see, man, it's so common to see people have mistake in reasoning, mistake in logic, mistake in the ways in which they think. And, um, and sometimes we make those mistakes too. And so I realized I've done a lot of shows on YouTube answering different questions and addressing really important issues. And I've never really had a show on YouTube. I've done one podcast a long time ago, but never a show on YouTube. Just trying to talk about how to think critically, how to build strong persuasive arguments, and then being able to spot and respond to logical fallacies. Now, this may not be the most interesting show that you have ever watched, which is why as soon as I'm done, I'm going to include, uh, what are they? They're called timestamps down below. And so really my hope behind this is this. Look, if you watch the whole thing start to finish, I hope that you can learn uh, something that you haven't learned, how to build good arguments, how to spot logical fallacies. And uh, But also I want this to be a resource to where if you are online and, and someone calls you out for a logical fallacy or you're thinking someone made a logical fallacy, but you're not quite sure which one, uh, hopefully this is a place where you can watch the video, you can find those timestamps before, you can click on the little uh, time that has a specific fallacy and see a brief description, uh, explanation, and example of that fallacy to be able to go, yeah, I think that was the fallacy that they committed, or maybe it was a different one. Now I need to go watch another little short section. So we're gonna work through this. Now I, I take like two weeks to teach this to my high schoolers. We go slow, we talk about it, we do lots of examples, and I give tons of and tons of examples because the more you see, the better you get at being able to respond to these and to be able to build arguments. The more you use it, the better that you get at it. Uh, but hey, here we are just gonna fly quickly. We're gonna talk through it. If you got questions, post them in the live chat. It's so good to be back with you guys. Hopefully you guys enjoy this. Hopefully this is encouraging to you for listening on podcast or radio. Hey, head over to YouTube and watch it there <laughs> and you get to see the visuals because I'm going to have, uh, if you're listening to this audio only, I'm going to have a bunch of visuals, visuals on the screen with me that have diagrams. So hopefully it kind of hits all the different learners, right? As a teacher, that's one of the things that we have to do is like, how are you going to develop a lesson plan that kind of hits all the different learners? And so hopefully there's a visual aspect, there's an auditory, your listening aspect, there's, you're going to see a graph and a diagram of the argument. So hopefully with all these things and also some examples, uh, this will help you be able to better understand and spot these logical fallacies. So with that, we're just going to kind of jump in. Now, one thing that's really important as you're talking and having conversations online, let me pull up the first screen here, is that people make a lot of statements. Right? And a statement can be true or false. Right? This is pretty simple. There's statements I can make. I can say, I uh, am doing a live stream right now, or I'm in uh, Hawaii and sitting on the beach right now. We can make a lot of different statements, and the statements that we make can either be true or false. Now, again, as you, if you watch this show, one of my pet peeves is when we automatically think that people are lying when they say something that is possibly False. Lying is now assuming intent behind that. Now, maybe it's possible that someone's just mistaken. They're stating something that they think is true, but it's not. And so we recognize, okay, there's statements that are true or false. Now, what's really important next in this is that a group of statements, if this is going to pop up, let me make sure this works. All right, there we go. When you take a bunch of statements and put them together, this can then be in the form of an argument or actually non-argument. And so what we have to recognize here is something that is really important. Um, just because someone strings a lot of statements together doesn't necessarily mean they are making an argument. It is possible to say a lot of true or false things, but you're not really necessarily building a case or making an argument for 
a certain point. And so, look, I see this all the time online. People will, will, will have this whole video where all they've done is just kind of make a bunch of statements. And then all of a sudden, like, the video ends. And it's like, wow, that, that kind of seems persuasive in the way that they presented it. It seems persuasive in, in what they're saying. But when you actually think about it, they didn't actually make an argument. They're not actually having uh, reasons and evidence leading to a certain conclusion. So that is what we, we see here in the in the basic sense here or in the start here is that just because you group a bunch of statements together doesn't mean that you're actually making an argument. Now, once these statements all come together, uh, it's important to recognize there's two main different types of arguments. And so um, uh, as you work through these, um, it's important to recognize, okay, two main types. Now, there's other types that we could talk about, but we're going to kind of keep it simple. This is a logic introduction. So the first thing that we're going to talk about here is a deductive argument. Now, someone recently asked me and kind of what gave me this idea for the show today is, um, do I think the ontological argument is a valid argument? So it's important to kind of recognize how these arguments work together and how to, to think through them and how they function differently. Because, well, sometimes an argument seems weird, but then you realize, oh, it's a different type of argument. And therefore, it's maybe not as weird. And we're going to get there in just a moment. Sorry if I'm confusing you a little bit. So a deductive argument. What does a deductive argument look like? All right. So you got a few statements. You have premises that lead to a conclusion. So the first thing that you want to look for, and we'll look at examples here in just a moment. With a deductive argument, we're asking the question, is it valid? Now, what this simply means is if true, are the premises connected to the conclusion where if the premises are true, then the conclusion is also true. Right. So with a deductive argument, you have something like a uh, argument by definition. And so um, uh, you, you have like a, a definition of a term. So like all, you know, men are uncles. You know, I am a man. Therefore, I'm an uncle. Right. So you have this term. All men are uncles. I'm a man. Therefore, I'm an uncle. Now, the first thing you're asking is, OK, is it even true if all men are uncles? And if I'm a man, does that make me an uncle? Well, if that follows logically, you have a valid argument, right? In the same way, you could have it be something that is false. You could say, if um, all men are ants, <laughs> I am a man, therefore I'm an ant. Now, if all men were ants, and if I was a man, you know, then that would make me an ant. If that's the definition of an ant, that an ant, your aunt is someone who is, you know, the male on the side of the family, then that would be true. And so that would be a valid argument. This is what's often kind of confused when we talk about different types of arguments and argumentation is that we, we, we think that because something has a false premise, that therefore it is no longer valid. And so it's important to recognize here in this first point, as I pull up some other examples here, sorry, I'm a little bit distracted. I forgot to grab my examples. Uh, but the first point here is, is recognizing uh, the first thing we're looking for is just simply, does it follow logically? If true, does the conclusion follow? Now, if it does, then we check for truth. And if the premises are true, now you have what is called a sound deductive argument. That is an argument that has all true premises and it is logically valid. Now, so again, as I mentioned, you have things like an um, a argument from definition. So uh, one like, you know, um, the common example, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. And so if all men die, if all men are mortal, and if Socrates actually is a man, then you can follow logically that Socrates is mortal. Now, the next question then is, okay, is it true that all men are mortal? Or is it true that Socrates is a man? 
So you have uh, also arguments by elimination, all right? And so uh, another one is like if you say uh, either Kay walked to the store or she drove to the store. So you have two options. Now, if this is a, you know, we're going to talk about fallacies here in a moment, but if this is not a, uh, a false dilemma and you, there's actually only two options, you say, okay, either you walked to the store, you drove to the store. Then premise two, she did not walk to the store. Therefore, by definition or by elimination, you know that she walked to the store. Right, so if it's true that you either only walked or drove, and if it's true that you did walk, then we know you did not drive. And so you can have these arguments by el elimination that you're giving these options and you eliminate those options to get to the conclusion. This would be like the design argument for God's existence kind of functions in this way, right? Where you say, you know, the design of our universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. The fine tuning of the universe, I guess you could say, is either due to physical necessity, chance, or design. The fine tuning of our universe is not due to chance or physical necessity. Therefore, by elimination, the design of our universe is due, or the fine tuning of our universe is due to design. And so um, then we say, okay, is it true? Is it true that these are the only three options that could lead to the fine tuning of our universe? And then is it true that it is not chance or physical necessity? And if those are true, then the last available option is it's due to design and it's a good deductive argument. And so that's how an argument by elimination would work is you start with that and then you eliminate those things. Now, again, as I mentioned, there's also arguments by definition. And I give you the example, all uncles are male. Bill is an uncle, therefore Bill is a male. And that would be a sound deductive argument that if it's true that all uncles are male and Bill is an uncle, then Bill by definition would be a male. And again, you can make this false. You could say all uncles are female. Bill is an uncle, therefore Bill is a female. Now this is valid because if true, it follows logically, but it is unsound because the first premise is false. Not all uncles are female. So hopefully this kind of gives you a breakdown, a little bit of a, an understanding here of, of different kinds of deductive arguments, the difference between what is valid, if true, does it follow logically? And then the check for truth, is it sound? Now, the other big type of argument, so again, we're just kind of moving on, pretty simple. Again, if you have questions, uh, let me know. We're kind of working through this, um, is an inductive argument. Now, this one is often, maybe if I could say it's, it's often misunderstood, right? Because as a deductive argument, it's really important to point out a deductive argument has premises that establish very specific things. Um, Sorry, I'm, reading, I'm looking at a deductive or an argument by definition here really quick. Sorry, a deductive argument is an argument built by generally accepted premises that lead to a necessary conclusion. The, the conclusion follows necessarily, right? If all uncles are male and Bill is an uncle, it logically and necessarily means that Bill is a male. There can't be another option. On the flip side, an inductive argument is an argument built on specific, specific premises that lead to a probable conclusion, right? So this is gonna be an argument by, based on probability. And I think this is often sometimes the arguments that are misunderstood is because we, uh, we hear something, it's like, but that's not a certain conclusion. It could be something else. But inductive arguments are not based on certainty, that's deduction. Inductive arguments are based on probability. So what does this look like? Well, in an inductive argument, the first thing that you are going to be checking for here, if I can pull this up next, is whether it's weak or strong. So for example, if you said most people I have met from Tennessee have been friendly, 
Therefore, it's likely that most Tennesseans are friendly, right? Now, if it, so like, if it's true that everyone you've met from Tennessee is friendly, then it follows that maybe most people from Tennessee are friendly. Now, the question then is to determine if it's strong or weak is, well, how many people from Tennessee have you met, right? How many people from Tennessee have you met? Now, if I said, you know, most winters in Minnesota are cold. Therefore, next winter is probably going to be cold. Well, is it true that most winters in Minnesota are cold? Yeah, like every winter is cold. Maybe not every day, but every winter is cold in Minnesota. Therefore, you can make a strong inductive argument that next winter is going to be cold as well. Uh, this is also ways that you can build uh, inductive arguments based on statistics. So if you said... 90% of the students at a certain school are in the biology department, then it is likely that if you meet, uh, or then you could say, well, then Sam is a student at this college. Therefore, he's probably a biology major. So it's, it's could it be possible that Sam, the student who's at this school, is one of the 10% of students who are not there, not in that major? Of course, it could be. It's, it's possible. But if 90% of students that attend a certain school are majoring in biology and Sam is attending that school, it's a very strong probability that Sam is a biology major. And so this is how we look at it. The first thing we check for in an inductive argument is it strong or weak. What if I said, you know, 5% of the students at my school wear glasses. John is a student at my school. Therefore, he probably wears glasses. You would say, that's not a good argument. That's really weak. It's only based on 5%. There's actually a better chance He's not wearing glasses. I think you guys get the point so far. So inductive arguments is based on probability. And the first thing we check for is strength and weakness. Now, once we see, okay, it's strong, then again, just like deduction, we then check whether it's true. And this is cogent or uncogent. So we go, okay, if it's true that most winters in Minnesota are cold, then next winter would be cold. Now, is it true that most winters in Minnesota are cold? Yes, it is true. Okay, then now this becomes a cogent argument. It is both strong and it is true. And so this is how we recognize uh, this. And so again, when we talk about this, and sometimes there's that confusion that I'm just trying to lay out the graph here for you, the kind of the flow chart, so to speak. Uh, if a deductive argument is invalid, you just dismiss it right away. If it's not a logical argument, dismiss it. If an inductive argument is weak, notice my chart stops, dismiss it. Irrelevant. Don't take any more time thinking about it. It's a weak argument. It's not worth considering. But if it's valid, now you have to check to see whether the premises are true. And if it's true, it's a sound, good argument. If it's unsound, okay, now dismiss it because you found out that it's false. The same with induction. If it's not true, it's uncogent, dismiss it. It's not a good, true probability. Uh, but if it's cogent, now you have a good, strong, inductive argument. Now, again, deduction leads to a necessary conclusion. You can't get away with the premises are true. This follows logically and necessarily. Induction, uh, yeah, it's just probabilities. Well, could you be wrong? Sure. But do you have any good reasons to believe that I am wrong? So again, uh, when we look at this, we think th this is how kind of the arguments for God's existence are built. Like the cosmological argument is a deductive argument. So it kind of starts off. Here's another way of thinking about this. If you like math, put it in a little math equation. Uh, is it valid? So the Kalam cosmological argument says, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So we ask the question, okay, if things that begin to exist have causes, and if our universe began to exist, does it follow logically, necessarily, that the universe has a cause? Yes. So the column is a valid argument. 
Then we ask the question, okay, are the premises true? Is it true that things that begin to exist have causes? Do we have a good reason to believe that that is more likely true than false? I think so, based on our personal experience and everything else that we recognize is true about the world and based on the understanding of science and cause and effect relationships. Right? Is it true that our universe began to exist? I think that that's what scientific discoveries are showing us in Big Bang cosmology, that our universe had a beginning. Okay, so if it's logically valid and in both premises are true, then the conclusion is true as well. And we have a sound deductive argument that our universe now began to exist and our universe has a cause. Uh, other arguments for God's existence fall into the same sort of category. Uh, design requires a designer. Our universe has been designed. Therefore, our universe has a designer. That is a valid argument. If design things require designers and if our universe is designed, it follows logically and necessarily that our universe has a designer. And so then the question becomes, okay, is it true that design things require designers? Or do we have examples of design things that were not designed? I don't think so. All right, what about our universe? Has our, does our universe exhibit design? Does it show evidence of design? I think that is also clear. Well, then our conclusion follows. It's a sound argument. Our universe has a designer. And then the question comes, who designed our universe? So hopefully this kind of helps. Again, laying that out and kind of making sense of this a little bit. Inductive arguments, same thing, math equations. First thing you check for, is it strong or weak? If it's a strong argument, you check to see if it's true. If the premises are all true, then you have a cogent inductive argument. So here is hopefully a, a brief introduction, and I guess maybe not so brief, 17 minutes. I don't know if that was good. Too much, too little. I don't know. You guys can send comments in the, in, you can put comments in the live chat if you have some questions on that. But hopefully that gives you a brief introduction to building uh, strong arguments, but then also being able to evaluate someone else's arguments to say, is this a good, strong argument? And Eddie, hey, what's up? Good to see you here. Uh, glad for you to join. Uh, sorry you're late. Well, well, you can figure out if you missed anything <laughs> later on. You can go back and watch and go, maybe it's a good thing I was late. I am not interested in that, or I don't know. We'll see. But Eddie, so glad to see you. Always good to see you here. Um, all right, so moving on now. Uh, that's kind of the, the basics on arguments. Now, what I'm going to do again is I'm going to get into logical fallacies. Now, I have a lot of logical fallacies to hit here. So rather than just giving you two or three and spending a lot of time talking about those, uh, I'm rather get, I'm going to go for, for breadth rather than depth, right? I'm just give you a wide rundown of a bunch of fallacies, and we're not going to go super deep into these. And so again, in the description below, if you're listening or watching on YouTube, there's going to be timestamps afterwards where you can just click through and see exactly what fallacy you want to learn more about or one that you want to try to figure out. Um, so uh, Sarah, yes, I'm glad I can do this. Um, enjoy the live stream uh, later on. Slam, good to see you. Hello as well. And We'll be back later. Awesome. Wonderful. So anyways, let's jump into some fallacies. And again, if you have questions on how this applies or what this looks like, let me know. We're going to jump in. So a fallacy, here's a quick definition. A fallacy is a mistake in reason that makes an argument or renders an argument invalid, unsound, weak, or ineffective. And again, this is a, this is a quick little PowerPoint I threw together for my uh, keynote for my uh, high school students to try to get, again, as I teach through this and we just cover a couple a day, I'm giving you everything at once. So let's start off. I think it's helpful to categorize things, right? And if you, I'm gonna give you three different categories. And so I think that this, again, it kind of, once you have a category it says, okay, I, I'm not quite sure what fallacy it fits in, but it sure seems like it fits in this category. We can begin to kind of work through these, right? So if you learn three categories, then you kind of learn the more details within each category. 
I think it's easier to memorize them, to figure them out, and to learn how to spot them. So the first kind of category I want to give you, and again, I've taken this all from my college uh, graduate school logic textbook, just called Logic by Patrick Hurley. Really good book. A lot of examples to help you spot them if you're interested in this sort of topic. The first category is what's called a fallacy of relevance. And so these eight that you see below, and you may recognize some of these names, some of them are very popular. Uh, these are all fallacies where the premises are logically irrelevant to the conclusion, right? It's not relevant to the conclusion. And so that's why it's a fallacy of relevance is, is this even relevant? Now, the second category, and we're going to get to these here in a moment, but let me just give you these categories first. The second category of arguments that we're going to look at is called a fallacy of weak induction. And this is where the, there's a connection from the premises to the conclusion, but the connection is not strong enough to actually support the conclusion. So it's very weak. Uh, so you, yeah, you have maybe true premises, but the premises don't really lead to the conclusion you want it to. And there's six different fallacies that fit into this category. The last category, according to Patrick Hurley, is called the fallacies of presumption, ambiguity, and grammatical analogy. And pretty much this in short is these six fallacies that we're gonna talk about have premises that presume what they are purport to prove. And so here's our three different categories. Let me give you a lot. I think it was like eight, six, and six. So we're gonna work through this. Um, again, man, I, I feel like flying through this. This is not gonna be the most exciting interview I've ever done. Or not, it's not an interview, live stream. But again, I hope that this is a good resource for those who are watching to be able to get some info on many different fallacies. So let's start with, firstly, the first category, fallacies of relevance, those that have premises that are logically irrelevant to the conclusion. So uh, one of the probably the most common that we often hear is the ad hominem. And the ad hominem fallacy is where you attack a person rather than the argument. So if you see the little graph, if you're watching on YouTube uh, that I've included here, Again, taking this all from Patrick Hurley in his book, Logic. Uh, this is where arguer number one is going to present a conclusion, present an argument. Here's my conclusion. Here's my view. Arguer two then comes in, verbally attacks arguer one and rejects the conclusion based on some sort of verbal attack. And so in this, it's actually not the arguer, first one, that is committing the fallacy. It is person two that is committing the fallacy here. So here is an example of an ad hominem. Hopefully you can read this. And again, this I took from the book. Uh, I'm not just picking on Bill Maher, but Bill Maher claims that religious people are trying to destroy free speech and bring down our country. And he supports his claims with a lot of evidence. Now, I don't know if Bill Maher, how much of this he is actually claiming. Again, I took this example from somewhere else, uh, but he could, supports his claim with evidence. So here, Bill Maher is arguing number one. He presents a strong evidential-based argument that religious people are destroying free speech and trying to bring down our country. But then you come along and say, well, you know what? I think that Bill Maher is a nasty, foul-mouthed, angry man. So don't listen to him. So you've dismissed this because of some verbal attack. You're just mocking the person. You're mocking the character. You're going after their, them, not dismissing the argument. You're not talking about the evidence presented. You're not talking about why the argument given is actually a false or bad argument. You're simply saying, well, I don't like you. Therefore, I reject what you are saying. This happens all the time all the time where we attack people. I just got this on TikTok today where someone, uh, oh man, what'd they say? I forgot what it was, but they just went after me and said I was, well, I can pull up my phone, but anyways, I forget uh, that I was just crazy. And it's like, okay, I may be crazy, um, but was my argument a good one? 
Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what I actually said, not whether you think I am crazy or not. So here's a, hopefully an understanding of an ad hominem going after the person rather than the argument. Now, same structure, our second argument uh, fallacy that we have here is attacking the motive. So this is when an argument where you attack a person's vested interest in the conclusion rather than attacking their conclusion. So same thing, person presents a good, strong, valid argument, and then you go, well, but you, and then you reject their conclusion. So for example, attacking the motive, the principle of the local school district says that you should vote yes on Prop 40. This would give schools additional financial help to survive this difficult time. However, she clearly only supports Prop 40 because she's a principal and will benefit from the additional income. So notice how here we're attacking the vested interest of this, of this principal. We're not asking what good arguments uh, the principal has. Edwin, what's up? Good to see you here. We're not talking about what argument. We're not dismissing and saying, hey, actually her arguments for Prop 40 are not good. Or here's actually how Prop 40 is going to be difficult or actually is not financially good. It's not going to help schools or it's going to put a heart burden on someone else. We're not discussing the actual you know, benefits and negatives of Prop 40. We're saying, well, she's a principal, so of course she wants to do it. Well, yeah. It is going to benefit her, but we don't always lie or make stuff up just because it benefits us. It's possible for something to benefit someone and for it to actually be good. We see this all the time. It's like, you know, I, here's an argument for Christianity. Well, but you're a Christian. Yes. So my motivation for saying this, just because I like the idea of heaven and what that means and I get to be with whatever, like that doesn't mean that I'm saying this just because of those things, right? We have to talk about someone's argument that they make, dismiss the points that they are making, dismiss the evidence, show how it's irrelevant, not just say, whoa, you have a motive, a motivation for saying this. Now, sometimes, you know, if we can see the motivation, well, you can see the motivation and why it's twisting someone when you recognize that their argument is not a good one, right? And that's what's really important to point out here. And so if you hear someone make an argument where, where it's clear that they are speaking kind of out of line because they have this motivation that causes them to say a certain thing. We still don't want to go after the motive initially. We want to say, well, let's talk about that argument. I think, and now if you're closer with them and you can have this conversation, like, I think, man, your, your, your judgment's being clouded because of this motivation that you have, because look at the argument, but still let's evaluate the argument. We can't dismiss it just because of what someone says. Now, again, this you can, there's other names for these fallacies, you know, also kind of the genetic fallacy, right? So it's like, um, you know, with abortion, this is a common one with abortion of like, if I make an argument against abortion, it's like, well, you're a man. Yes, I am. <laughs> but just because I am a man, just because uh, that's who I am, um, you're going after somehow my vested interest or, or why I would be presenting this rather than the actual argument I'm making for a pro-life position. And so again, we got to make sure we're very careful about not just going after someone's motive or else then we are the ones committing the logical fallacy. All right, let's move along so I don't drag this out forever. Let's see. What's the next one? Um, is it coming? Attacking the motive. There we go. A two quote quay. The two quote quay fallacy is where you, uh, when a person's conclusion is rejected because he or she does not live as if the conclusion is true. So again, arguer one here presents a conclusion, presents arguments and evidence for that conclusion. And arguer two is going to uh, dismiss it. Why? 
because they do not live as if it's true. Um, Edwin, thank you so much for that. That's actually my first ever. I almost didn't put the super chats or whatever those are on here. I didn't know how I felt about them, but I thought, hey, I'll throw it on there. If someone wants to do it, uh, they can. Uh, so Edwin, thank you so much. I will go get a Starbucks for um the lovely weekend. My wife will enjoy that as well. Um, appreciate it. So uh, this is where you're rejecting it because yeah, they, they don't live as if it's true, right? So, um, you know, you could talk about Christianity and, and, and the fact that Christians sometimes are not uh, good people. And that doesn't make Christianity false. That just makes the person kind of a hypocrite. Uh, you could talk about here. I can't believe a student. Oh, I forgot to change some school names. Anyways, uh, there are schools in our district that my students know of. So I can't believe the student at Diamond Bar High School would talk bad about Southlands. Their school has 10 times the dropout rate as we do. So it's like, why would you talk bad about me? You do it too, right? And we're going after them saying, what a hypocrite. You do this, right? Other examples is like, you know, do you take you know, weight loss advice from someone maybe who's overweight? And it's like, well, look who's talking, right? It's, it's kind of the look who's talking fallacy. It's like, you, if you don't even take your own advice, why are you giving me advice? Well, it's possible someone can give good advice on why you should stay married, even though they haven't stayed married, right? And so again, the argument they're making for why you should stay married, even if they've been divorced five times, it could be a good argument for why you should stay married. You can't go, well, look who's talking. You've been divorced five times. Yes, even if that's true. Um, it still could be a good argument they're making. So you can't dismiss something just because they don't live as if it is true. All right, scare tactics. This one is popular. We all know this one, right? This is now, I know we're switching, right? So those first few where is where the person responding is the one that's making the fallacy. Now we're switching to where the person making the argument is the one that's making this fallacy. So uh, when an argument is built on fear of negative consequences for not agreeing with the conclusion, right? And so here it's very clear. You, you threaten someone into agreeing with you. You scare them at the threat of what might happen, right? So a common example, uh, Adam, I deserve to use your car this weekend. After all, you wouldn't want your mom to find out that you cheated on that test today, right? So you're now threatening Adam. You're not making a good argument as to why you should use Adam's car. You're scaring Adam uh, at the threat of punishment to lend you that car. I just got done talking about sexuality with my high school students and, and kind of the scare tactics that Christians have used to try to get students to not have sex before they're married. And it's like, if you have sex, you're going to get her pregnant. Or if you have sex, you're going to get an STD. Or if you get have sex and, and we, excuse me, we talk about all these complications and it's like, we're almost scaring. If you do this, oh my goodness, guess what's about to happen? And it could be true. It could be true. But again, the question is, well, what is the motivation? What is the reason we're trying to use to get them to agree with us? Now, what we have to be careful with, with the scare tactic, is that not, is that presenting consequences for an action are not always scaring. So you can talk about the number of people that, that get sexually transmitted diseases. You can talk about the families that have been destroyed through divorce and these sort of things. And, and that's not scaring someone. And so again, we have to be very careful as we talk about this and say, look, here are the, the natural personal and social consequences of a sexual revolution. This is kind of what we've done to ourselves because of this. That's very different than saying, if you have sex, this is what's going to happen to you and kind of scaring someone into agreeing with this. Hopefully that makes sense. Now, along with scare tactics, now we have appeal to pity. An argument that tries to evoke feelings of pity rather than making an actual argument. 
I see this all the time when, when we, when we deal with very difficult things, right? So the TikTok video that I posted uh, today was in response to someone saying uh, that the Bible is not a pro-life book. Uh, and they kind of asked this very tricky question where they said, um, is the Bible a pro-life book? There's a street interview. And the person said, oh, yes, of course. And he says, okay, well, what about the people who say, you know, uh, God killed all those people and the animals in the flood? Uh, that doesn't sound very pro-life. And now I'm pointing out that like that's very a, a sneaky switch, right? Because the pro-life that he talks about in the first one is probably referring the pro-life movement where we talk about it being uh, wrong to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. There's unjustified taking of innocent human life, specifically of the unborn. His then second question is, what about the flood killing all the people? Well, now this is God's punishment. This is a justified taking of life. It is a form of punishment to people who are evil and wicked. Now, later on, they got about the topic of the children and whatnot. Um, but when they bring up the children, well, what about the children? Now, this is hard. This comes up with the killing of the Canaanites as well. But why the children? Because I think that there's this sense of, oh my goodness, this weight, right? The, the kids, the innocence, and it requires a good thoughtful response and not kind of flippantly going, well, it's okay to kill children because it's not. But I think that when it comes to this, it sometimes is hard to, um, to satisfy the emotions behind a response always. And we can give a logical argument, um, but not always satisfy the emotions that people have. And so we can evoke feelings of pity where it's like, hey, but what about the kids? And so therefore this, well, hold on a second. Can we get to that conclusion just because what about the children, right? And now again, this is important to recognize that it is good. It is okay to show people emotional things that where we see pain and destruction and it, oh my goodness, and it's heartbreaking. But again, this is where the fallacy is where your premises, you don't have evidence to lead to the conclusion. You're just getting them to agree with you because they feel bad, not because you've made a good argument. The best good arguments is where you make a good argument and that argu argument, it has an emotional weight to it where they go, wow, that's true and that's heavy. Now we're talking about good persuasive arguments because you're, you're pairing together the intellectual mind and the feelings that God has created us with. Uh, the fallacy of appealing to pity is dismissing that, right? So uh, an example here that I have, um, you know, Brazil has been wrecked by financial crisis and earthquakes. Many children are dying of starvation. People have lost their jobs and the streets are filled with the homeless. The only solution would be to send them a lot of money to fix the situation. Well, is that the only, you know, they get you to feel bad about the homeless children and the people that ha don't have jobs and, and starving people. And it's like, yeah, that's a real thing, but we can't let this difficult situation cause us to jump to a conclusion that may not be best. What are the good reasons we have for just sending lots of money versus maybe doing something else? All right, bandwagon fallacy. Moving along. Man, I'm, I don't know if I'm talking way too long. We've been going 35 minutes. Oh my goodness. Okay, bandwagon fallacy. An argument that appeals to popular support of a conclusion instead of building a case for that conclusion. And so it's like, hey, here's your need for security or here is all the popular support and therefore you should agree with me because this is the popular thing. This is used all the time to me in regards to like evolution of like, don't you realize that you are in the minority? And it's like, yeah, 
but that doesn't mean that what I'm saying is false, right? It's, it, you know, some of the greatest scientific discoveries were people who came along and said, I think the consensus is wrong. And they discovered really cool, amazing things. So an example of a bandwagon fallacy where everyone downloads movies off the internet these days, therefore you shouldn't have any issue doing it yourself. It's very common among students. Well, everyone's doing it. Therefore I should do it myself. Now, this is where maybe a response to a fallacious argument, a good response is, as Greg Coco calls it, you know, taking off the roof, you know, argumentum ad absurdum, an argument from absurdity. So if a student presents this bandwagon fallacy, well, apply this logic. Everyone's doing it. Therefore, I should too. Apply it to an absurd conclusion, right? Parents do this all the time. We all know this. If everyone jumped off a cliff, would you jump too? Well, of course not. Okay. So then the argument, everyone's doing it. Therefore, I should too, isn't a good argument. Now, it's important to recognize with the bandwagon, maybe there are really good reasons why everyone believes something, right? And I love the video of, um, and of course, I just blanked the name, the famous New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman, who's not a Christian, right? And he says, uh, look, just, you know, he's like, if you want to talk about the theory of evolution versus the theory of creation, and he goes, and every single scholar at every single major university believes in evolution. He goes, now that's not an argument for evolution. But if you're going to disagree, you better have a pretty good argument yourself. And I like the way he put it. And he was actually using that to respond to the historical Jesus, where he says every single scholar at every single major institution uh, in every relevant field believes that Jesus existed. He goes, and now that's not an argument for Jesus, because then that's a bandwagon. Hey, everyone does it. Everyone believes it. Therefore, you should too. But he's like, if you're going to say he didn't exist, didn't exist, you better have a pretty good counter argument yourself. And so it is important to recognize the difference between just saying, well, everyone, you know, this is the common, the modus held view. Therefore, you should too. Versus what are the reasons why this is the most common, most held view? Uh, straw man argument. Oh man, this one is super popular, super common, uh, an argument where you misrepresent someone's position and therefore make it easier to refute. This happens all the time. And it's so important as man, if you are a Christian, you are watching. If you're not a Christian and you're watching, make sure you represent people accurately and well. Right? People always talk about the opposite of this. Like instead of straw manning people, we should steel man them. Make the argument, make the make their point, the best possible argument and version of their argument that you can. And if you can knock that down, now you know you got a good response, a good refutation. Uh, but don't distort someone's view and therefore just dismiss it. And so uh, here's one I use for my students. I don't know if you can read that, man, that's small. There's a lot of text there. But hey, Mr. Polly taught us that we should persuade people uh, of the truth because false ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. But did you know that he also believes people have invisible ghosts hiding in their body called a soul? This is a delusion. Souls are imaginary body parts. No scientific experiment has ever proven a soul to exist. Clearly, Mr. Polly can't be trusted. Now, if you know me, I don't teach that you have an invisible ghost hiding in your body. Right. And so, again, this is a distortion of my view to make it sound absolutely ridiculous. Then it is easily knocked down. You don't have an invisible ghost in your body. That's not scientific. Therefore, his views are crazy. Kind of don't trust him. Um, again, this is why questions are so important when you are having conversations with people to make sure you are accurately understanding their point before you dismiss them without reason. All right, I think this is the last of our fallacies of relevance, the red herring, where an irrelevant issue is raised in an argument in order to avoid 
the issue of hand. This is also so common where you make a point and then someone brings up something irrelevant and also you're way distracted and you're avoiding what's actually taking place and avoiding the argument that the per that you made or the other person made. And so uh, example here, Stuart consistently complains about how Mr. Polly's tests are too hard and unfair. But have you seen the way he eats his food? It's as if he's never learned how to hold a fork or knife. He picks it up with his bare hands and shoves it in his mouth. He first needs to learn some manners before he complains about philosophy class again. Uh, I try to find some arguments <laughs> or some, some examples that relate to my class and my for my students. But uh, notice this. We're not talking about why uh, if my tests are actually too hard or if they actually are unfair. Rather than discussing Stuart's complaint against my class, we are kind of mocking him in a way like, oh, have you seen how he eats his food? Oh my goodness. But we're talking about something completely irrelevant. The way he eats his food is not relevant to my class and whether my tests are hard or not. So why are we bringing up the fact that he eats like an animal and just picks up his food and shoves it in his mouth? That's not relevant. We can't dismiss his point just because of this. And so um, we'd have to recognize um, you can't take the conclusion of dismiss this. Clearly, Mr. Polly's tests aren't too hard or um, unfair because of how he eats. Completely irrelevant. So there's our fallacies of relevance. Hopefully the quick little example, the little flow chart, the little description explanation has helped. Let's move along because we got some more to get through in our last 20 minutes that we have here. Fallacies of weak induction. Again, quick reminder, this category is the connection between the premises and conclusion is not strong enough to support the conclusion. Now, again, if you're just jumping in, uh, whether on the radio or on YouTube, I'm going to make a, uh, you know, on YouTube, I'm going to do timestamps so you can just go right to the fallacy you want to learn more about because there is a lot that we're working through here quickly. Uh, but here's our six that we're going to talk about here. First, the inappropriate appeal to an authority. This is when your argument is built on the testimony of an individual who is not an authority in the subject at hand. Now, a common misunderstanding about this fallacy is that there are appropriate appeals to an authority. Right. So if you're making a, a, a conclusion based on cosmology and you quote a cosmologist, that's an appropriate authority in that. Now, it still doesn't mean it's true just because one cosmologist said it, but it's not inappropriate because you're quoting an authority who's actually an authority in the subject at hand. Right. So an unqualified authority would be something like this. Evolution is definitely false because I heard two English teachers talking about that this morning. That's your fallacy, because just because they're English teachers. That's not the way it works. Now, biology teachers, okay, now we got some more weight to this because they're an appropriate authority. But either way, we still want to go back and say, what arguments do they give? What did the English teachers say that somehow proves evolution is false? But just because they're English teachers doesn't mean that this is false. Next up on our list, an appeal to ignorance. When an argument asserts that a proposition must be true because it has not been proven false, right? So here's a slightly different thing here. You see on the chart, uh, here's your premise. No one has proven that X is true. Therefore, X is false, right? So a very common uh, one that you see with this, it's like no one has ever been able to prove that God exists. Therefore, we must conclude that God's existence is a myth. Um, no, if no one has proven that God does exist, then that simply leads with we don't know. It simply leaves, we don't know if he exists or not, right? You, uh, we have not proven that Bob is guilty. Therefore, Bob is innocent. Well, no, Bob could be guilty. You just haven't shown it yet. And so you can't conclude that the opposite is true uh, than what has been proven. So just because something has, hasn't been proven to be true, 
does not mean it's false. It's not the way that logic works. Next up on our list, moving quickly again, if you got questions or comments on these or anything else, put it in the live chat. We'll talk about it. False cause. A false cause is when a cause and effect connection is assumed without sufficient evidence for that connection, right? So here you have your bunch of premises and your premises supposedly lead to the conclusion, but it's based or depends on a non-existent or a minor causal connection. So for example, a few minutes after Mr. Polly finished teaching his class, a major earthquake hit California and destroyed Los Angeles. For the safety of the rest of the state, it is imperative that Mr. Polly does not teach any more classes. <laughs> I hope you realize with my examples here, um, I'm trying to find examples that are really obvious, right? <laughs> not all logical fallacies are going to be this obvious. Some of them are going to be really hard to go, man, which one is it? And as I tell my students, even me uh, taking graduate level logic class, I still can't always perfectly spot exactly what fallacy something is. But to be able to go, I'm not sure which fallacy that was, but there's something wrong there. Like that's a great point to start. There's something wrong with this. Um, and just to kind of see that there's something off. Now, obviously this is really obvious, but it's not always, the false cost is not always as obvious, but it's pretty clear here. Just because I taught and an earthquake happened did not mean my teaching caused the earthquake. Uh, this is not true. It just is a coincidence. I can continue teaching and Los Angeles will still be safe. Next up, hasty generalization. Now, this is often miscon uh, this is often confused with the fallacy of composition, which is what we'll get to at the end. So let me present this, present that, and then hopefully uh, it'll make sense for you. And hopefully this is helping. I sure hope this helps. I want to do YouTube videos and podcasts that help you guys. And so hopefully this is helping um, these examples. So hasty generalization. This is when a fallacy of a certain quality of a part is assumed to be the quality of the whole. Uh, so you have a very specific case, then you generalize it, and you kind of make this generalized rule. So for example, the Los Angeles Times reported this morning about how five high school students were racing and crashed their cars last night. High school students these days don't know how to drive. Right. So notice this, right? Five high school students do something. Therefore, you generalize it and say high school students can't drive. Well, you can't do that based on five. There's a lot more high school drivers than five. You have to have, again, a more of a case, right? If you're going to build a strong inductive argument, if you could say like 90% of high school students get into accidents and get tickets, you know, uh, Sam is a high school student. Therefore, Sam is probably going to do this, you know, get into an accident or get a ticket. Like That's a good inductive, strong argument if true. Um, but based on five, uh, this is a very quick or hasty generalization that may not be accurate. You need more information at least to know if this is accurate. Slippery slope. When a claim is made with insufficient evidence, if, it, if a certain action is taken, it would eventually lead to dire consequences, right? So here's a long example here. The students have asked for an additional 10 minutes at break for, uh, of break at lunch. So they want a longer lunch, right? So rather than be like, hey, let's think about this. It's like, well, we have to refuse this request. Why? Well, you guys, uh, if we give them the extra 10 minutes, next they'll ask for extra time during each passing period. Then it will be less periods in the day and eventually there'll be no school at all. Without school, they'll never be successful in life and they will end up on the streets. Homelessness is already a serious issue. We can't add to it. So here you have this disaster. All of students will become homeless because 
they have an extra 10 minutes at lunch? How do we get here? Now, again, to recognize with fallacies, they're often used or we fall into them because it sometimes is based on a reality that there are true slippery slopes that doing one does actually lead to another. And there are chain reaction events that do take place, but not, uh, but the fallacy here is when the chain reaction is not actually likely to occur. Just because you give the students an extra 10 minutes of break does not mean that they're going to become homeless or even ask the next few things you can grant one and not another. Not a good reason to dismiss their request. Next up, weak analogy. Uh, when a comparison is made between things that are not comparable in relevant aspects. Now, here's what's important when we talk about weak analogies. All analogies are going to be off because it's an analogy. It's not the same thing that you're describing. So it's like, but that analogy doesn't fit perfectly. It's like, well, if it fit perfectly on every single point, then it's no longer an analogy. You're talking about the actual thing that you're talking about. If you get what I'm saying here. A weak analogy though, is when a comparison is made between two things that are not comparable in relevant respects, in relevant respects. So for example, in the video that I put on TikTok today, uh, I said, you know, I think a, a, a somewhat analogy to kind of the question he was asking is like, is like saying, um, uh, do you believe that it is, um, wrong to send innocent people to prison? Well, yeah. Well, what about this judge that sends guilty people to prison? Well, we're talking about different things. Now, is a judge sending a guilty person to prison um, this, and, and us sending innocent people to jail the same as what the guy mentioned as far as Noah's flood? Well, no, it's not perfectly analogous. But the relevant thing is the difference between a punishment of a guilty person and inflicting almost the same punishment on someone who's innocent that doesn't deserve it. Right? That's what I'm going for in that analogy. And I think that it's relevant in that respect talking about punishing or killing an innocent person versus punishing a guilty guilty person. There's a difference there when God punishes versus we just kill. And so I think it's relevant in that respect. Now, is it the same as sending people to jail? No, of course not. Um, so it is an, an analogy. The question is, is it a good analogy? Does it actually fit? Um, so example here, no one would ever buy a car without test driving it first. So no one should expect to get married without testing out sex first. Now you often hear this, like, it's like, man, if you test clothes, if you try on clothes, you try on shoes, you try out your car, why won't you try out the person? This is an argument you sometimes hear for the reasonableness of premarital sex. But the question here is this, is the relevant aspect analogous? Testing a car versus testing a person are people items that we test before, or we, that we use and test before we agree to. No, people are not the same as cars. People are not the same as two shoes. Yeah, testing a pair of shoes is not the same as testing a person. We're not saying, you know, so this is not hopefully a good analogy and hopefully you see that. All right, our last set of categories and let's see how much time I got. I got 10 minutes. So we'll work through this in our last 10 minutes. Again, if there's any questions or th something specific that you want to ask about or things that I'm not explaining clearly, please put them in the live chat and I'll address them at the end. Uh, but here's our final six fallacies. Now, a fallacy of equivocation. I think this is what the video I did on TikTok, uh, I think kind of made this morning. And it's where you use a keyword in an argument ambiguously or in two different ways in order to dismiss or lead to kind of a different conclusion. So here's your premises. And in that you have a word used in two different senses and, and therefore it doesn't lead to the conclusion and support the conclusion like you think it does. So for example, a Southland student is a human being. So a good Southland student is a good human being. Notice how we are equivocating on the word good. 
is a good student the same as a good human? No, by good student, we mean student that's got A's, does homework, pays attention to class. A good human is someone who is morally good, who loves and cares for and that sort of thing, right? So we, so just because you're a good student, you could have straight A's, you could be a bad person. You could, you could go off and commit a bunch of murders, but have straight A's. In the same way, you could be an F student, you could be a bad student, but be a really good, kind, loving person. Um, just because you're a good student doesn't mean you're a good human, even though students are humans. Another example I give uh, for this, I wish I had it written down in front of me to my students, um, is um, if you give someone a ring, then you are considered engaged. John gave Susan a ring. In fact, he called her last night. So John and Susan are engaged. And, uh, you know, we don't use that term as much. So maybe it's kind of confusing to students now. But giving someone a ring and being engaged, we're talking about this kind of ring. Or you give someone a ring, he called her last night, right? Giving him a ring is calling. So just because you give someone a ring does not mean that you're engaged. Notice how that word changes definitions or is used ambiguously and therefore does not support the conclusion that they are engaged because he gave her a ring. Next up, begging the question. When a premise of an argument merely assumes what the conclusion is trying to prove, right? So in the chart here, I have kind of, you have the shaky premise and conclusion, and then it kind of, you see it kind of starts rotating and goes in a circle. So for example, evolution is true. Well, how do you know it? Because DNA and similar bone structures prove that we have a common ancestor. Well, why not a common designer? Well, because evolution is true or because God doesn't exist. How do you know? You, got, you know, and you can kind of work that circle. Now, please hear me clearly. Not every evolutionist makes this argument, but this would be an argument for circular reason. Christians do the same thing. Uh, God exists. Well, how do you know? Well, the Bible says so. Why do you believe the Bible? Because God exists and you wrote it. This is a circular argument that is often used where you're not actually building an argument that leads to a specific or true conclusion. False dilemmas, right? This is when a problem is presented as having only two solutions where there's at least one other possibility Right, so uh, this this used to be a lot more common on uh, on Facebook than I see today. But it's like share this post if you love Jesus. Keep scrolling if you love Satan, and it's like oh my goodness, I don't want to share this post, but if I keep scrolling, I love Satan. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I guess I have to share it because I love Jesus. It's like no, nah, there is a third option. You can love Jesus and not share the post and keep scrolling, right? And so we hear this all the time: support this candidate, or you want the country to be destroyed. Well, man, I don't think those are all only two options. Maybe there's an option to support someone different and still not destroy the country. And so here's a false dilemma. Here's your two options. Pick one. This is very common with um, why God allows evil, right? The Euthyphro dilemma uh, is, is God command something because it is good or does God's command make it good, right? So this assumes it's like, okay, does God say, you know, love, you should love because love is good. And there's some sort of standard outside of God that he has to look to this other standard and he's okay. He sees love is good. So therefore he commands us to love and hug people. And that's a loving thing. Or does hugging people and loving people become good because God said so. Right. And this is a false dilemma. It's saying, here's the two options. Either there's an outside standard or it's completely arbitrary and God can do whatever he wants. And you solve this false dilemma by saying, no, there's a third option. God is the standard. God's nature is the standard. He is love and his commands flow from that. And so the Euthyro dilemma here is a false dilemma. Loaded questions. When a question presumes or proposes, sorry, an unjustified assumption. So you attempt uh, to trap by asking this question and then the way that they respond is gonna complete 
the argument. So for example, if I were to ask a student, when did you stop cheating on tests? <laughs> I'm assuming that they cheat on tests. And so I said, well, when did you stop cheating on tests? They're going to say, I haven't. Well, that assumes that they're still cheating. And if they said, well, I did stop, it assumes that they were cheating and then they stopped, right? Because again, my question is, is assuming that they're already cheating and no matter how they respond, it's going to complete my argument that they were a cheater rather than saying, did you cheat on the test? Right? It's when did you stop? Um, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes. <laughs> that assumes that you were beating her and now you're not. If you say no, it means you still are. Oh my goodness, you're still beating her. How dare you? It's like, no, that's, you're assuming that they're beating their wife by saying, have you stopped beating your wife? Um, that is a very loaded question. So don't assume people about in the questions that you ask. All right, last two here. Uh, fallacy of division. A fallacy of division is uh, the assumption that because the whole has a certain characteristic, then so must its parts. So for example, uh, drinking water is good when you are thirsty. Water is made of two parts oxygen, one part hydrogen. So oxygen is good when you're thirsty and so is hydrogen. So notice what we've done here in the fallacy of division. We say water, when combined in the whole, this is good for quenching thirst. Then we take water, divide it up into its parts and say, therefore, the parts should have the same characteristic, that characteristic being able to quench your thirst. But that's not how this works. Um, you know, you could say the same thing with, with sports. This is the championship team. They are the best team. Therefore, every player on the team is the best player. No, not necessarily. You could have the player that's horrible and sits the bench and you could have good players and you could have bad players, um, but you can't divide a team up its, into its parts, the players, and then therefore every player is also the best player. No, you could have better players on other teams, but as a team, they're not the best, right? So just because a team or a part, or I mean, the whole has a certain characteristic doesn't mean the parts have it as well. Now from the flip side and our last fallacy, if anyone is still here watching, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I do like a week or two to go over all these in my class. Uh, we're hitting it all in one hour real quick. Um, fallacy of composition. The composition is that the assumption is that because the parts have a certain characteristic, then so must the whole. All right. So example here would be every sentence of the essay is a well-written sentence. So each part is well-written. Each sentence is well-written. Therefore, put them all together. The essay is well-written. Well, no, you could have a bunch of really well sentences that are part of an essay that is just a jumbled mess talking about nonsense. The boy went to the store. Dogs like to run in parks. The moon is high up in the air. Well, every sentence is a good sentence, but the essay is just all over the place. It's not a good essay. So you can't combine something together. Now, this is normally when my students go, well, what's the difference between a hasty generalization and composition? And if I, now it's really easy if I can draw this out on my board, um, but here's, if I can describe it, here's the difference. Hasty generalization. So if you're looking at the chart on YouTube uh, on my screen, you see all the little dots, all the parts. Hasty generalization is saying three of these dots are good, right? Therefore, they must all be good, right? So you're taking, you're assuming the whole has a characteristic or all the parts have the characteristic because two of them do, right? So if these are students, for example, or sentences in an essay, right? Hasty generalization would say, Three sentences in this essay are well-written, therefore probably every sentence is well-written and therefore it's a well-written essay. 
right? That's your hasty generalization. You're taking uh, a characteristic of, of only three parts, assuming every part has it. Versus composition is every part has this. Every sentence is well-written. Therefore, the essay, combine the sentences together in an essay, the essay is well-written. That's where the, the um, composition comes in. So I don't know if that makes sense, but hopefully that helps in seeing the difference between a hasty generalization and the fallacy of composition. And I think that is the end, and it is. So, um, wow, we just hit an hour. Uh, so this was a lot of information. Again, I was going for breadth, not necessarily depth, trying to give a brief definition, uh, picture and example of each fallacy, hopefully helping you uh, have a resource that you can go back to or you can send to someone and say, hey, you want to figure out what a straw man is or you want to figure out what a fallacy composition or equivocation. Someone just said, hey, I think you just communicate, you know, uh, um, uh, um, I think that you just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You just made or committed, there's the word, you just committed the fallacy of equivocation. And you're like, what's that? Uh, you can come here, click on that timestamp, watch the two minutes on equivocation and see if that's uh, what it is. So um, you think the guy deleted the pro-life video? It's not on YouTube anymore and I watched it this morning. Interesting, I saw it on TikTok. So I don't know if it's still on TikTok uh, or not. I can check here in a little bit, but it would be interesting if he deleted it. Um, and because uh, again, it was a, it was a, it was an interesting exchange. And I, and the reason, again, you guys haven't seen the video, um, but again, it's a, it's an interaction interview on the street. And the guy responding is, is wearing a priest collar. So assume you use a priest and he had a really hard time answering these questions uh, about how do we understand the Genesis narrative and God uh, killing people. And eventually just kind of punted to mystery and just said, yeah, man, Genesis is hard to interpret. And it's like, it was really hard to watch. And another reason why I try to do what I do and try to help you guys out and say, look, we need to think deeply about what Christianity is, learn how to defend it well and faithfully live it out. And I think that there is uh, a lot of people that are defending Christianity well and a lot of people that are not defending it well and get stumped by questions that maybe we should not be getting stumped by. And part of that is being able to see fallacies and seeing how he's switching definitions in the questions that he's asking and even switching people. Um, and we can talk about that more later and go into exactly what that video was. Um, but hopefully today, man, a basic, quick, fast, lot of information, introduction to logic and critical thinking. Hopefully this helps, becomes a resource for you and for others uh, in the future. Uh, again, man, always uh, trying to figure out interviews and trying to schedule things and work with people and their stuff is in the work. So if you like what I do, there's a lot of other videos that are gonna pop up over here you can check out, but there are gonna be some fun interviews coming up. I promise you, things are slow right now. Things are different, as you know. Uh, I'm working on things, but things are fun. Things are happening. And so be ready. Actually, the next scheduled interview, I can tell you because I have one on the books. Um, I'm having email conversations with some people and I always hesitate telling you about the email conversations because, um, well, if it doesn't work out, then I kind of throw it out there. But anyways, on February 22nd, Brett Kunkel from Maven is going to be coming on uh, because the Maven conference is going to be March 18 and 19. Um, great lineup of speakers, really fun. It's in person in Southern California, as well as they're streaming it everywhere. And so Brett is going to be coming on February 22nd uh, to discuss the conference and talk about youth apologetics and how to really shape and, 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 and work with students and be parents who are engaged and thoughtful in the way that they 
work with students as well. And so it's going to be a really fun conversation. That's February 22nd. You can check that out. I think about four o'clock or four 30. I forget exactly what time, but if you subscribe, you're following the channel, it'll pop up eventually as a upcoming live stream. So with that, I don't think there's any other announcements. Uh, busy week. Hey, if you guys, man, if you are followers, now that we're at the very end, here's a little ministry update. If you're followers, um, I would love your prayers. Um, I've been wanting more speaking events and I got some. So last Wednesday night, I was doing a live Q&A uh, with a group of college students at a college ministry. This coming Wednesday night, I'm going to be doing a Q&A with a junior high ministry. The following Wednesday night, I have a lecture that I'm going to be giving to another junior high group. And so uh, speaking events are starting to come up. And so I'd love your prayers for those events, that they would go well, that they would be a blessing to the group that I'm um, working with. And um, as well as I love prayers for more, I'm still wanting to, to book and schedule um, uh, more events for the spring and summer. So if you know of uh, anybody that needs a speaker uh, and want to recommend me, that would mean a lot. So I appreciate uh, that. And so again, you can kind of stay up to date on the community tab as I kind of post things that I'm doing as well as videos that are coming up. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Edwin, again for that, uh, for that super chat or whatever it's called. And, um, and uh, have a wonderful, blessed rest of your day, everybody. Thank you for being here. Continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. See ya. Just as you leave, won't hesitate to follow.